If you would remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's Word. Our preaching passage for the morning is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. If you would keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he, call, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother." This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. As we uh, continue through uh, Mark's gospel together, we've now come to the point in the story where Mark is describing for us uh, groups of people, great crowds, who are coming to follow uh, Jesus. And as he's describing these groups of people who are coming to follow Jesus, he has a question in his mind that this story that he's telling that is interwoven to tell a particular, with a particular theme in mind and to answer this question. The question is, who really are his disciples? That is, 
Who really is a follower of Jesus? What does it truly mean to be in the kingdom of God? How, how, do, you, how do you know whether you really are a Christian? What does it mean to truly be uh, saved? What is the standard for those who are genuinely, actually, uh, truly his disciples. That who, with all these crowds who are following Jesus, with all the different stories that, he's, these, that Mark is putting together around this central theme, who really are his disciples? Uh, what is the answer to that question? How, do you, how would we answer that as a church? How would you answer that as an individual? What, what is the hallmark? What is the standard? How do you know where you're going to go when you die? How do you know that you're going to heaven? How do you know that you really are in the kingdom? Who truly are his disciples? Lots of different answers to that question have been given down through the years, and different answers are still being given to it today. Uh, the most common answer is it doesn't really matter what you think or what you believe as long as you are sincere. But is that Jesus' answer? And then there are the answers that different denominations have given, different churches have given. You have to follow this or that rule. You have to check box in this way, be baptized in a certain kind of way, accept communion, and, and, and these kind of religious rules. But are those the answers according to Jesus and the Bible? Who really are his disciples? Of course, it's a fundamentally important question, isn't it? Because at stake is death and life and eternity and heaven and hell. How would we answer that? And Mark is putting these stories together, this part of the narrative, very, very carefully interwoven to answer that question. And the answer that he gives, as we'll see as we go through it, is at one level a very simple one, but is so critically significant that if you miss that, you miss everything. Uh, I was thinking through how to illustrate the sort of main theme of the, of the passage and the message this morning, and I was reminded of how when uh, Rochelle and I were first married, we decided that we would uh, put together a rather nice um, evening dinner for a friend of ours who'd been working very hard in ministry. She, this friend of ours had had quite a tough season, and we thought, you know, we were newly married. We didn't have children at the time. We thought we put on a really nice uh, dinner for her and, and treat her to a special evening out and, uh, and all that sort of thing. And uh, so she came around to our home and we were chatting together and we had this nice time around the dinner table as we were talking. And then I, as part of that, um, uh, obviously my wife had done the cooking. I'm not a great cook, to be honest, but um, I do like coffee. And I have a, if I really want to make a nice cup of coffee, there's a particular way that I do it. It's, um, you can buy these um, uh, stovetop espresso makers and the, the water bubbles up through the coffee and it creates uh, this particularly really pretty strong espresso coffee. And I like to do that that way when I have the time. It's not my go-to because it can take a little bit longer, but it was a nice evening. We're having a friend round. So I, I said to Locke, I can make you a really nice 
cup of coffee. You won't believe how it was good. So, you know, coffee grounds, bought the, you know, some really nice coffee beans, ground the coffee, um, get the water filtered just right, you know, put it on the stove and um, bubble, start the process. And, and I, I came back into the, where we were sitting around with this friend, chat a little bit more. And I said, okay, I think it's, I can hear it. I think it's just about ready. I walked into the kitchen just on my own. And as I walked in, there was this huge bang and um, the whole thing kind of exploded all over me. And I walked back out to uh, Rochelle and this friend of ours and covered from head to foot in coffee grinds and said, well, I don't think that worked. <laughs> what I had neglected to do is there's one particular rather important piece called a filter that you need to put in. And since then, I, I still have the same coffee maker, but now I've bought one with a, with a filter um, as part of the instrument, so I don't have to remember to put the filter in. It's just, it was just a, little, just a little piece. You know, I'd done everything else. I'd filtered the water, I bought the best coffee beans, I ground the coffee beans, I turned on the stove, I'd, I'd heated it up, and everything else was fine. This little filter made all the difference. And there's a little thing here that many of the people in this story miss. And that if we miss, we miss the whole thing. Let's see how Mark tells the story. First of all, there are the crowds. You can see this in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Look where they come from. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. This is a, a huge crowd drawn from a very large area. It's a, a great crowd, he emphasizes twice. So large is this crowd, the disciples, for safety reasons, um, are asked to get a boat ready so that the crowd, as it presses against Jesus, uh, will not crush him. If the crowd becomes too big and it gets dangerous, they can get onto a boat and he can keep preaching from uh, from the sea of the crowd. That kind of massive crowd. Well, says Mark, as he's telling the story, is that the answer to who really are his disciples? Do you tell by the numbers of people? A lot of people do discern whether what they're receiving is real Christianity purely numerically. How many people, if there are a lot of people, must be a work of God. If there aren't a lot of people, must not be a work of God. And yet here, as Mark tells the story, in this crowd, there are many uh, not only with diseases, but with unclean spirits. 
And they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. As we saw last time, this wasn't the unclean spirits worshipping Jesus. This was them trying to magically control him. And he tells them not to speak because they're, they're attempting to ruin his reputation by declaring that he's the son of God rather than affirming him. So in this massive crowd, there are literally demon-possessed people. So Mark isn't against the crowd as such, but it's pretty clear the crowd, just being a part of the crowd isn't, isn't the answer. Today, there are churches meeting across the land with tens of thousands of people in attendance. 50,000. Is that an undeniable, infallible indicator that that means that that size of church is therefore doing the work of God I remember when we first um, were doing a church plant on the east coast and as we began we were very very small just a few people and other Christians they wouldn't come out and say it but really they were sort of sneering at the ridiculousness of trying to do church with just 10 or 15 people. We are too small. And then, somewhat amusingly, as we began to grow rapidly and became much bigger, other people sneered at us because we were too big. Either way, it's mistaken. You don't tell by numbers. Big or small, small or big. Yes, there are crowds, but there are demon-possessed people among the crowds. Having crowds following Jesus is a good thing, but it's not the final arbiter as to whether those people in the crowds really are his disciples. Well, if it's not the crowds, then maybe... Uh, Mark says it's uh, the appointed leadership that, that tells. This too is another common answer that people give to how you tell who are really his disciples. It's through the formal appointed leadership. And so he then introduces us to the, uh, the, the apostles. Jesus goes up to the mountain and he calls to him those uh, whom he desired, verse 13, and they came to him and he, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, apostles just means sent ones. So he's calling those to him so they'll be with him that he might send them out. Uh, they're going to spend a lot of time with Jesus. He doesn't actually send them out until Mark chapter 6. So they've got to learn from Jesus and be prepared for their ministry. And he gives them authority uh, to preach and to cast out demons. So there you have it. The, the formal appointed leadership of the church. Now, is that how you tell who are really his disciples? By um, the quality of the leadership. Again, that's a very typical answer. Uh, this bishop has had this person's hands laid on them down through the years, right the way back to the apostles. Therefore, it must be real Christianity. 
Or this person has a particularly anointed ministry and there are those gathered around him who affirm that ministry. And therefore, because of that, that must be an infallible indicator that whoever's a part of that group are really his disciples. But then you look at this list of apostles. Who do we have here? Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter, of course, means rock from the Aramaic, Kephas. Um, but Simon is not called rock because he had a rock-like personality. Simon denied Jesus. And then even after the resurrection, in Galatians chapter 2, you'll read how Simon even then made a massive error in terms of the uh, multiracial nature of the church that he, he resisted. And it was rebuked by the Apostle Paul for drawing back from fellowship with the Gentiles, so those who are not Jews. Peter was a man who erred, sinned. He denied Jesus. He's called the rock because his confession of Jesus as the Son of God is the rock on which the church is built, that confession. But he himself made many errors. He, he, if you read the Gospels, he barely opened his mouth before he put his foot in it. And then uh, we have uh, uh, James and uh, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Boanerges, that is Sons of Thunder. Well, that wasn't a flattering name. They were called Sons of Thunder because you can read about this in Luke's Gospel that uh, when they went to a set of uh, villages that had resisted Jesus' ministry, they said, should we not call down fire from heaven upon them? Uh, They were likely to get angry. They had a thunderous personality. Oh, yes, they were apostles, But they were sons of thunder. We come across leaders like that today too, don't we? Who maybe are anointed at one level, write good books, preach good sermons. But if you follow them online, you'll find that they're tweeting the most fiery, angry kind of things. Sons of thunder. And then most obviously of of all, uh, we have Judas Iscariot, called Iscariot probably, no one really knows, but probably because from the Aramaic that means from Kerioth, a particular region. But Judas, of course, is most well known for being the one, as it says here, who betrayed Jesus, one of the twelve. So my dear friend, do not let it shake your faith when you come across formally appointed Christian leaders who sin or fail or get angry when they should not or deny Jesus or even betray, betray him. It's only to be expected. Even among Jesus' apostles, there was a Judas. 
Simon, of course, uh, Peter, a great man of the church, but he, he, he made a lot of mistakes. James and John, sons of thunder. Don't let it shake your faith. Because the formal appointed leadership, as important as that is, is not the final infallible arbiter of what is the definition of being a part of a group that really are his disciples. We, we, we shouldn't be surprised when our Christian leaders are not perfect, when they fail. It doesn't mean it makes it easy, and it d- doesn't mean that it's any excuse. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, holds up that uh, the overseer is to be above reproach, gentle, not argumentative, not a lover of money, uh, and all the rest. There is a standard to which Christian leaders should be held, but we who follow Jesus and are part of groups where there are Christian leaders should not have our faith ultimately placed in them. What if it's not uh, the formal appointed leadership? Then perhaps another uh, common answer that's been given is that it's uh, the, the, uh, the academics, the professors, the scribes. So that next, uh, Mark introduces us to them. The, and verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. It seems to us as we read that sort of ridiculous that they're saying that, but we, what we have to understand is the significance of it. So the scribes, Mark says, who came down from Jerusalem, that is, they are the elite scholars. They are from Jerusalem, that kind of scribe or scholar. They're from Harvard or Yale or Oxford or Wheaton. Elite scholars who really know what they're talking about, have studied the Bible, are theologically sophisticated, have all the credentials. Surely they will define for us what the nature of real discipleship is. Look at their books. Look at the letters after their names. Are they not scribes? And are they not scribes from Jerusalem too? And yet, as is so often the case, pure knowledge does not necessarily equate with wisdom. And here they make an obvious logical fallacy that Jesus points out. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. In other words, if you're saying that demons are casting out demons, well, that makes no logical sense. And if it was happening, then there would be no more demonic kingdom because the demons would have had civil war and be divided and destroyed. It makes no logical sense, scribes. So often the kind of 
attacks on Christianity from the elite professorial class, also, when you really look at it, don't make much logical sense. I mean, the underpinning to most of that these days is the idea that science is the only way of knowing what is real or true. And therefore, of course, a book and a preacher and the unseen is magically magical thinking. It's ridiculous. But, 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 but think about that. If science is the only arbiter to what is real and true, that statement itself that science is the only arbiter to what is real and true is not defendable by science. It's a logical statement, not a scientific one. So what about logic? Where does that come from? And reason. And if what about other forms of knowledge, like military knowledge? It's not scientific. It's pretty important. What about the knowledge about how to have a happy marriage and family? Not scientific. Very important. What about the knowledge of God revealed in Jesus? So these scribes and professors, despite all their impressive credentials, are making a logical fallacy. But not only that, in pointing out, in attempting to claim that Jesus is demonic, they're actually showing their own devilish kind of thinking. So Jesus says, verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, if Jesus is casting out demons, then he is not a demon. He's the strong man. He's the Lord. He's the king. He's God incarnate. I remember one time when this chap wasn't a scholar, he was a pastor, but I remember he, at the church, a church plant we did, we would often have a lot of homeless people in the, in, in the church. There was a ministry to homeless people, and they would come in off the streets, and they'd sit at the back, and, 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 I, and there they were, part of the church. And I was describing this to my pastor friend, and he, and he a friend, someone I knew who's a pastor from another town, and he said to me, you're kidding. You mean that in your church you are bringing in every single week straight off the streets homeless, demon-possessed people? It struck me. It was bizarre. Why should someone be more likely to be demon-possessed if they're homeless than if they had a huge house? And what was even more ironic is this fellow who had said this some years later showed himself to actually be struggling with all sorts of demonic habits that he could not overcome. Listen, my friend, if you're struggling with a power that you cannot break, alcoholism, sexual bondage of one kind or another, what you need is the strong man what you need is Jesus. Not all these theories from the scribes from Jerusalem, but Jesus. Well, if it's not the, uh, the crowds and it's not the formal appointed leadership that defines things and it's not the scribes, maybe it's Jesus' family. And so 
in the way that it's interwoven so brilliantly. Uh, verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered and his family heard it. So you get the crowd and the family hear about it. What do they say? They say he is out of his mind. They're trying to seize him. They're trying to put him in a mental institute in our modern terms. They're trying to grab hold of him. He's lost it. And then a little bit later, verse 31, as he's uh, with the crowd again, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Again, in a moment of brilliance from Mark, the way Mark tells the story, earlier Jesus had called the apostles that he might send them. Now, that's the right way around. Jesus calls us and sends us out. But here, uh, Jesus' family, they're sending for him and calling him. They've got it upside down. Think about it, how amazing it is that Jesus' own family, Mary, who gave birth to him as a virgin, now cannot grasp what's going on. And his own brothers, we know his brothers later came to believe in him, but not here. So easy, isn't it, for us to have a familiarity with the things of God, but not actually to be his disciple. So what is the definition? Jesus gives it to us in the verse, last verse of the passage. He looks about those who have sat around him. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. This is the family of God. Um, for whoever does the will of God, and Luke in his version puts in whoever hears God's word and does it, Either way, it's the same idea. They're sitting around hearing Jesus teach, and then he says, but for whoever does the will of God, he or she is my brother and sister and mother. Well, that's the definition, isn't it? Whoever does the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, that has already been declared to us by Mark earlier in his gospel. You'll find it in Mark chapter 11 and uh, verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 11. Jesus has been baptized. Here is the will of God. It's a voice that came from heaven, that is from God, speaking to Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And therefore to do the will of God is uh, to follow Jesus as the Son of God. Not in theory, <laughs> but in practice. It's a very important clarification, isn't it, as we gather together on this Back to Church Sunday. So easy in a country like ours that has been massively influenced by Christian things to think 
because I know, roughly speaking, who Jesus is, and I have some familiarity with the Bible, that I'm good. That I don't have to fear what will happen to me when I die. That I've got it. When maybe we're making the coffee, but we haven't put in the filter. When I was a teenager, I remember hearing one particular preacher who came for a week of um, uh, sermons at the the school I attended, and I, it was uh, I don't I can't remember his name. I don't I, I I have never heard from him since. But that week was remarkably anointed by God, and he's and I don't really remember what he said as such. I just saw the impact of it. Um, but I do remember two illustrations he gave both of which were fairly dramatic. The first of those illustrations is one I think you couldn't literally ever repeat anymore um, because we live in a more violent age than the age which I grew up. But he was in the pulpit preaching away, and he uh, reached down below the pulpit, and as he was preaching, he brought out a shotgun. And then to the great delight of all the teenage students at the school, he proceeded to point it at the teachers. It was one of those illustrations that was so good that all I remember is the illustration rather than what it was illustrating. (laughs) To this day, I have no idea what the point of it was. But it definitely got our attention. But if I were to use that illustration today, it would have a point. And that, of course, would be life is short, death is sure. Are you really one of his disciples? Now, we've we've skipped over this part about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, I can't close a sermon without giving clarity to that. If you have any worry as to whether you have committed that blasphemy, be assured the, the, the fact that you have any concern about it is for sure and for certain proof that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. The only sin that is unforgivable is the sin of not asking for forgiveness. For the blasting of the Holy Spirit is what the scribes were doing, which was attributing to Jesus in an ongoing way, as Mark says, for they were saying um, the very opposite of the work of God. It is unrepentant, deliberate, ongoing, ultimate rebellion against God. So the only sin that is unforgivable is the sin of not asking for forgiveness. And if you have any worry at all whatsoever that you might have committed that sin, it is a sure and certain sign that you have not. That said, Jesus does bring into the open the seriousness of knowing where we stand with God with that shotgun. There was one other illustration that that uh, revival preacher used that I do remember, and I do remember the point of it as well. He reached into his pocket, got out his wallet, and uh, brought out a, well, it wasn't a $20 note. It was probably a 10-pound note at the time, which, given inflation, is probably 
about $20 now, I suppose, or maybe 100 Who knows what's going on? But um, he, he brought out the, uh, the note, and he looked at us and said, uh, here's a $20 note. Uh, here's $20. It's free for the first person, for anyone who comes up to the platform and takes it. It's free. That was a long pause. No one could quite believe it, as neither can you. $20 for free for anyone who comes to the platform. Really, free. I did, like, you know, I'm not going to put it on my expense account. It's free. There we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so hard to believe that something is free. But the will of God and doing His will is to repent and believe, to receive the gift of God in the Son of God. And it's offered to you this morning. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to uh, do your will, not in theory but in practice, to receive your gift and to follow you as a disciple. We pray we do that as a church and as individuals. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.